Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this web-only episode, in 2014, the White House Task Force to Protect Students from Sexual Assault published its first report. It starts with these findings. One in five women is sexually assaulted in college. Most often, it's by someone she knows. And also most often, she does not report what happened. Many survivors are left feeling isolated, ashamed, or to blame. President Barack Obama said this about the report and the issue of sexual assault. Some of this is a job for government, but really, it's up to all of us. We've got to teach young people, men and women, to be brave enough to stand up and help put an end to these crimes. We've especially got to teach young men to show women the respect they deserve. I want every young man in America to know that real men do not hurt women. And those of us who are fathers have a special obligation to make sure every young man out there understands that being a man means recognizing sexual violence and being outraged by it and doing their part to stop it. Shocked by the story of a family friend, author John Krakauer began an exploration of why sexual assault is at once so prevalent and yet so unreported and unprosecuted. His new book is Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. In this talk, he explains how what happens in Missoula, Montana, is a template for our national failure to confront the epidemic of sexual assault. John Krakauer spoke with KUOW's Ross Reynolds at Town Hall Seattle on February 24th. Thanks to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Good evening. Thanks for, for joining us this evening. Could I ask how many of you have read Missoula? Could you raise your hands, please? How many of you read more than one John Krakauer book? How many of you read all of John Krakauer's books? Maybe one of you should be doing this interview. <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to this. It's a, as those of you who have read it know, it raises a lot of provocative questions about the issue of rape. We're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about the continuing story of what happens in the book Missoula. And we're going to talk to John Krakauer about his career. He has a very interesting career path that led him to what he does today. So, John, first of all, I understand it's a personal story that really kind of got you started on this book. Could you tell that story? Yeah, and and, uh, I explain this in the final pages of the book, but I was like most of Americans, was ignorant about how uh, pervasive this problem was of, of rape. And um, a young woman with whom my wife and I are very close, uh, she was born here in Seattle. Uh, I was living here when she was born. Um, I, she was like a daughter to us. And she was on a fast-track career. Everything seemed great in her early 20s. And I got a call one day that she was in rehab in Arizona. And I was shocked. It made no sense. turned out when she was 14 or 15, she was raped by uh, an acquaintance, a young man who was a little older than her. And then several years later, she was raped repeatedly again by a family friend who I know well, another Seattleite. Um, And I couldn't, I was staggered by this. And uh, so I started doing what I know how to do, which is research, just for my own, to understand what's going on here, what is this problem, how per- and that's what led me to write this book. 
you recount in the book numerous instances of women raped in Missoula at the university, and police turned these cases over to prosecutors, and prosecutors didn't prosecute. Why? Um, rape cases are really hard to win. Any prosecutor will, will tell you that. Uh, even in Seattle, um, one, of the, one of the people who was very important in my book was Becky Rowe, Rebecca Rowe, who for many years ran the sexual assault division for King County, the King County prosecutor. And um, she'll tell you how hard it is. Uh, she gets it done, though, and she's not afraid to lose cases. The prosecutor in Montana, she brags that she has a 99% success rate, and that's because she only took cases that were slam dunks. Uh, in the four-year period that I investigated, and coincidentally the Department of Justice also investigated, uh, 350 cases of sexual assault uh, came to were came to her desk for prosecution. Um, guess how many she prosecuted in those four years? Fourteen. Um, uh, and she had cases where she had signed confessions, she had video evidence, and she said there's not probable cause. She just wouldn't take them. Uh, one of the more disturbing cases I write about in the book, a woman named Caitlin Kelly, uh, was raped, sexually assaulted on the university by another student. And uh, when, when she, you know, she was convinced to go to the police and uh, the police investigated and this prosecutor named Kirsten Papps, without even talking to Caitlin, the victim, said there's not probable cause and refused to prosecute. Not only did she do that, when Caitlin took the, her case to the university, which did prosecute it, which did adjudicate it, um, on her own initiative, Kirsten Papps went to the university hearing to testify on behalf of the rapist. Uh, um, that, oh, there, I didn't find probable cause. This woman just had buyer's remorse in the morning. Um, this was outrageous. That, this is the county prosecutor. She then, um, she wanted more time with her family, she said. So in 2014, 2013, she quit prosecutor's office to go into private practice and just coincidentally, she happened to represent the star quarterback of the Montana football team who was charged with rape. So she stopped being the prosecutor. was his defense attorney. Um, I'm convinced he's guilty, but, you know, it's hard. to. It was a tough case in some ways. Uh, she got him off the hook. And then based on, and he was so popular, the most popular person in Montana, I kid you not. And because she kept him out of jail, she then the next year ran for county attorney and won, and she's now the current head prosecutor in Missoula County. Um, so this is what's going on in Missoula. As you point out, I mean, acquaintance rape certainly is just a problem in Missoula, Montana. How does it compare to other campuses? So Missoula, one of the great things about Missoula is it's not an outlier. It's not a particularly bad case. Missoula is a really typical college town. In fact, its, rate of, its rape rates are actually uh, better than a little better than most other towns. It's better than the average. So it's not... What goes on in Missoula, in many regards, goes on everywhere. Um, 85% of rapes in this country are acquaintance rapes. Um, and people think the worst thing would be, you know, some guy jumps out of the bushes with a knife and, and rapes you. And science, brain science, shows that it's much more traumatic for a victim who, when she's raped by, an, by someone she knows and trusts. And some of the people I wrote about in the book, and in general this is true, are raped by people they trust completely. The lead story in my book is a woman who was raped by her best friend since she was six years old. Uh, she was asleep one night, 
they'd been drinking, um, and she woke up to him raping her. And she had a slam dunk case. She secret, she she had three tape recorded confessions, um, and it should have been easy. And she had to just fight tooth and nail to get the prosecutors to prosecute, not to just to give him a slap on the wrist. He'd confessed. Um, you know, but the prosecutors wanted to let him off easy because he's a football star. And, you know, Seattle understands, I mean, the Huskies, you know, this is, they're a big team, Division One, uh, And Montana's a much smaller, the Big Sky Conference, but it's, it's at least as fanatical about football there as, as, as you guys are here. Um, so, and, you know, I don't, so football players, they have this sense of entitlement. They're treated like gods. They can do no wrong. Um, Juries are really reluctant to convict football players in Missoula and everywhere else. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the difficulties in prosecuting these cases. Um, post-traumatic stress syndrome amongst rape victims is reportedly a, at a level as combat of combat veterans. So how does that make these cases so much more difficult to prosecute? It's actually higher than combat veterans. The rate of, of PTSD for rape victims is higher than for for veterans returning from the recent wars. And what it does is um, the trauma of being raped is, like, is different than other traumas. It's really, um, it changes your brain chemistry. It, it, uh, women who are raped by someone they trust, it, it's shown that it's easier for them to deny they were raped. than if, When you're raped by someone you trust that completely, it changes your worldview. You don't feel safe. If this guy could have raped Alison Huguet, she didn't feel safe anywhere. You know, she... Uh, at first, she, she wouldn't see a psychiatrist. She thought she was fine. But then every time she'd go to bed, she'd check under the bed like 10 times in a row. Every time she went to the bathroom, she'd look behind the shower curtain. It was, you know, post-traumatic stress is a really, it doesn't go away. I mean, there's no cure for it. It can last a lifetime. And this is from, you know, the trauma of sexual assault. It's a really special kind of trauma. And you report that that leads victims sometimes to do things that seem inexplicable. Yeah, in in the quarterback, the the quarterback Jordan Johnson from Eugene, Oregon, who raped this woman, who in the book I call Cecilia Washburn, um, I thought it was a slam dunk case. Um, she was interested in having a romantic relationship with him. They were watching TV. They were making out. She consented to some pretty heavy making out, um, taking clothes off, uh, and then all of a sudden something flipped in in him, and he flipped her over, and he raped her from behind. And she was, you know, in shock, just sort of froze up. And then when he was done, he went to the bathroom to pee. And while he was doing that, she was really freaked out, and she texted her roommate. Um, oh, my God, you know, he pushed and pushed. I said no, but he wouldn't stop. Oh, my God, I think I was just raped. And this is pretty solid evidence. Um, it was within seconds or minutes of it happening. It's not like the next day she cooked up the story. Well, the prosecutor... <laughs> And that's, and that's a really common reaction. The prosecution said, what do you mean? She thinks she was raped? She didn't know she was raped? But it turns out, uh, and this has been shown in science too, that uh, when victims are raped, the most common reaction they have is not, I was raped, it's, was I raped? Was I just raped? I think I might have been raped. That is how women react. The, the, this victim... who. Uh, she wanted the guy out of her house. She's totally freaked out, so she drove him home. The, pro the defense used that, too. It's like, how can you drive your rapist home? That kind of stuff happens a lot. It's not at all unusual for victims to do stuff like that because their brain circuitry is so fried, and that's post-traumatic stress. 
some of the most interesting and disturbing information that you bring out in the book is how studies have shown that when men describe interactions they've had with women, they're basically describing a rape, but they don't see it that way. Yeah, it was a very cleverly designed study where uh, uh, a psychologist interviewed all these young men, college-age men and a little older, and he was very careful never to use the words like rape or sexual assault. He just asked them to describe what they did, and they describe rapes. They describe raping women. They talk how they get them drunk um, and rape them when they were unconscious or, or, you know, or barely conscious. But they don't see themselves as rapists. And everyone at the campus, these are nice guys. They're not creepy guys. They're star athletes. They're really good students. They're charming. So rapists are among us. Um, and they don't fit the stereotype we have of rapists. And they don't see themselves as rapists. That is the key thing. So I was going to say, why do men rape? But it sounds as though many of them don't even know that they are raping women. Men rape because they, it's so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some more well-respected studies that show of, of every hundred rapes, um, let's see, let me get these numbers right. Only 3% of those rapes end up with the rapist convicted, 3.8%. So 97% of the time, the rapist walks away laughing. Um, Now, you know, it's very contentious because, you know, false reports. What about women lie? Well, yes, some women do lie. They Victims of rape lie about the much, about almost exactly the same as victims of other serious crimes. Between 2% and 10% of the time, probably closer to 2%, but let's be conservative and call it 10, victims lie about being raped. Um, now, you take that number, and, and I'm, when someone is falsely accused of rape, I would do everything I could to exonerate him. I mean, that's a terrible thing. But it's at least as bad when a woman is raped... And then she's disbelieved. And not only does she have this horrible trauma that will, could ruin her life, but now she's stigmatized as being, you know, the guy who put the quarterback in prison and lied about it. Um, so, and, and the numbers of women who rape, you know, is a fraction. By an order of magnitude, more men rape and get away with it. We're talking about, you know, for every woman that lies about being raped, maybe 100 rapists rape and get away with it. So, and this is speculation, but that's, that's a pretty accurate, rough estimate. So, we have, yeah, false accusations is a problem, but it's a very tiny problem compared to this huge, pervasive problem of women who are raped, especially by acquaintances, and, and don't report it. Um, at most, 80% of women even report it. I mean, I'm sorry, it means 20% of women even report being raped. 80% or more of rapes are never even reported. Uh, closer to 90%. So, and that's because women aren't stupid. They see how victims are treated if they try to press charges, even if they go to universities. Um, you know, they're slut-shamed, they're pilloried on the Internet. Um, they, they, they're driven to... You know, I, I've, I've met women, or uh, some just not extensively, but in the course of researching this book, you know, there were women who were raped 30 years ago and are still cutting themselves. They're still so traumatized by what happened. This is a huge problem that is not being taken seriously. Um, It's mind-boggling to me, and it's so hard to get people to take it seriously. And the reasons, I understand them, but 
Um, it's not, this isn't a new epidemic. This has been going on since the dawn of civilization, um, but it's still going on. You know, I spent five months in Afghanistan on my last book about Pat Tillman, and one of the most disturbing things about that war, and I was in the combat zone, was the way women were treated by tribal Afghan societies. But I tell you what, um, in some ways they have, they're still a medieval society. In this country, women are still treated that badly by, you know, brilliant athletes, athletes and, and, and students. So um, we still have a long way to go with this problem. Where does it, you trace back where this notion comes from that a high percentage of rape accusations are false accusations? Could you talk about where the idea came from and how it's been disproven? Um, well, there's, there's, I mean, it's, it goes back for the idea that women lie about being raped goes back centuries. And, you know, I didn't go into that in great detail. I, a, a really uh, enlightening book was published, I think, in, in the mid-70s, I think, 75, Against Our Will by Susan Brown Miller. Um, she's a pretty radical feminist, and she's, she's dismissed because of that. But her history of rape is spot on, is accurate, and it really explains how we got here. Women have always been property, you know. Um, that's the, and, and they're still seen as such. Uh, but there's, there were these bogus studies out there that would show, like the, the men's rights movement, um, likes to cite two studies that show the rate of false accusations is really 40 or 50 percent. And those studies have been debunked. Um, it was, in one, it was the police force. It was in one town, one police force. And, and the police just said, this woman's lying. That wasn't. They never corroborated it. So it was just the word of these cops. They threatened victims with uh, polygraph tests, which the International Association of Police Chiefs says that's, you know, you can't do that. That That's that doesn't yield good results. So, but these two studies, if you want to believe women lie, those studies still, one of them, I couldn't even find the study. It's cited over and over again. I have yet to see the actual study. Um, I believe it exists somewhere. But these are the studies trotted out by the men's rights movement and a lot of women um, who think, you know, the real, the real problem is false accusations, which is bullshit. That is just bullshit. You, all, you also recount research... You also recount research that suggests that it's a small number of men who are committing most of the rapes. Right, and this is another, I think, a really solid, solid research. It need, more needs to be done. But um, uh, one of the people I, I interviewed, he was really helpful, was a guy named David Lisak. Uh, from, uh, he was a professor in, in Boston, and he did this really good study. He'd, he'd done work with prisoners uh, incarcerated man, and he knew from these prisoners, it wasn't acquaintance rape, it was rapists who jumped out of bushes for the most part, but he found that a few of these rape, rapists had done a lot of rapes. They, they were serial rapists. So he wondered if that was also true for men who committed acquaintance rape. And he devised a clever study and, and found that, uh, like on a college campus, for instance, or any community, but in this case a campus, um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but 90% of the rapes are committed by a tiny percentage of the men. And each of those men, not a tiny percentage, but like I think it was 10% or 5% or 15%. But anyway, each of those men had raped on average six women and committed other crimes of violence against women and children too. So what this tells us, and it's really important, is that when 
if a police department or a prosecutor doesn't go after this rapist because they think, oh, it was just a drunk girl and a, you know, it was, you know, it was hooking up that went wrong, you're, you're missing the chance to put away a guy who probably, there's a 90% chance that that guy raped six other women. And if you don't go after him, he's going to be out there raping other women. And, and these guys get better. These serial rapists, from these interviews, it became clear that these serial rapists, they get better at raping. They learn, this, they, they, they look for their prey, they know situations, they strike in situations where the women won't be believed afterwards. They look for women in bars who are, after, you know, watching them for days or weeks, this, this is an alcoholic, you know, she's going to be easy prey. These guys, you know, they refine their techniques. So, um, it's scary out there. Uh, and that's, it's not just, you know, so men who commit rape, um, and it's not just college campuses, they, the guys who do it, do it a lot. Um, and it's important that society tr- try to remove them from our midst. Universities can expel students uh, for rape, even if they're not convicted in a court of law. And this leads to a lot of interesting aspects of how universities deal with this question versus how the courts deal with it. In some ways, it's easier to make a case at the university, but the punishment is, is less, and a lot of the information is covered up. I wonder if you could talk about those differences. The, the thing to start with here is remember that in the criminal justice system, it's so hard to convict rapists. And there's, there's reasons for this that are rooted in, you know, we, we believe in giving the accused due process, um, Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. You know, we really... We're very concerned that an individual accused of a crime is up against the big, powerful state, and we don't want the state, with all its power, to abuse that power and convict innocent people. Um, so we give the accused, you know, better that, that uh, 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man is incarcerated. That's, you know, every law student learns that, Blackstone's famous maxim. Um, so... You have to remember that the criminal justice system doesn't just not convict rapists, it shames the victims and reintroduces this trauma. So if you want to get rapists, if you want to punish them, hold them accountable, it's not a very good way to do it. Now, universities, um, you know, the, some of the women in this country who are most at risk for rape, the women who are at most at risk for rape are between the ages of, I think, 18 and 24, um, and women who are raped on campuses are most apt to be raped in their first month on campus. Any of you who have daughters who are going to college? Be very scared. Um, so university have a chance. Universities have a required by law, by Title IX, to make their campuses safe. So to do this, unlike the criminal justice system, which is concerned about procedure, procedural justice, which is not at all the same as the truth or real justice. Universities are concerned with real justice, with removing dangerous people from their midst. So they under, you know, they were ordered by the Department of Education in 2011 to lower their burden of proof for adjudicating rape cases to something called the preponderance of evidence. More likely than not, 51%. The burden of proof for criminal justice system is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is usually considered 90%. Um, so universities have an easier time to convict people. And they don't convict them. All they can do is expel them. They can't incarcerate them. They can't put them on sex offender lists. So this is a good solution. Now, people freak out. 51%, that's terrible. Well, that's the burden of proof in almost all civil cases, in almost all civil litigation. And I, in the book, I use the, the example of O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson, 
Simpson, we now know, was guilty of murdering Nicole Brown. Um, a jury found him innocent for all kinds of reasons, somewhat similar to why it's so hard to convict rapists. But that was a high burden of proof, beyond reasonable doubt. A couple of years later, he's sued by the victim's father, and he is found guilty of murder, essentially, and, and uh, awarded a $33 million judgment based on preponderance of evidence. And no one complained about that. It's, it's a reasonable, if, if you're not incarcerating someone, it's reasonable to have that burden of proof. It's almost required. It is so, the, the problem with university adjudications, and there's huge problems, is that there's no national standard. Some schools are pretty good, most are really bad. Most are fair neither to the victim or the guy who's accused. That needs to be changed. There's a law uh, advance, being advanced or being proposed uh, by uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York and Claire McCaskill of Missouri that's now just sort of trying to make its way through Congress that would, you know, create a national standard. And that's important. Another sad thing, though, is that studies show that women who aren't in college are at somewhat more at risk of being raped than women who are. So that doesn't help any of the women who are raped who aren't in college. But at least it's something. I mean, and I, I'm not proposing, nobody's, well, some people are, but I'm not saying it's either or. What universities do, if they're good, is they encourage the women to pursue justice through the criminal justice system and adjudicate it through the university system. Both need to happen in parallel. Um, But the university system is so unreliable. It takes years. The rapist is usually let off the hook that it's just, and I don't know how to change that. It is what it is. You're still working on this. Uh, Recently, the Montana Supreme Court justices decided to hear your case to get uh, former University of Montana quarterback Jordan Johnson's records released. Why is this important to you? So the quarterback, as I mentioned, was found innocent. He was acquitted by a jury, um, Jordan Johnson. Um, When I interviewed one of the jurors afterwards, she said, well, we thought he probably did it, but the defense injected enough reasonable doubt that, you know, there was reasonable doubt, so we let him off. Um, She also pointed out that the jury was was mostly elderly people, this text that was the key piece of evidence, these jurors didn't know what texting was. They didn't really understand the significance. Why would someone be typing on their phone after they were raped? You know, that, they don't understand young people. But um, anyway, so Johnson was adjudicated by the university system. Uh, the dean of students found him guilty. He appealed, as it was his right, to the vice president of student affairs. She found him guilty. He appealed again to a university court, a tribunal appointed by the president of students, faculty, and staff. After a hearing, he had a lawyer. Um, evidence was presented. They voted 5-2 to two to convict him, 7-0 to zero to expel him. The president said, I find this was a fair hearing. You're expelled. Great, except he was never expelled, and no one would say why. When I went to the university, when I went to the the commissioner of higher education, he'd say, can't talk about that. FERPA, federal law, it's privacy. It's privacy rights. You can't tell you anything about it. Um, so uh, that pissed me off. And um, <laughs> so, so I sued. I petitioned uh, state court of Montana, um, you know, because Montana is a really interesting state. It has very strong privacy laws, but it has even stronger right-to-know laws Article 2 of the Constitution is Montanans have a right to know what their government is doing. They have a right access to government records. So I said, show me your records. And this district court judge said, yeah, show him in the records. I won the case. The commissioner appealed to the Supreme Court. That was over, well over a year ago. And it's now 
going to be decided by the Supreme Court, hopefully in the next few months, and there's going to be a hearing in April. Um, and this brings up another point. One of the, there will never be justice, it'll be very hard to get justice for women on campuses as long as these privacy laws exist. Universities care about their brand. Every university, UW, every university diminishes the rape problem. They do not report rapes. Um, some of them now, like almost 200 schools are now being investigated by the Department of Justice uh, for not reporting rapes accurately, not being fair to women. So, you know, that's great. Schools are already changing. A study shows that when schools are audited like this, when they're being investigated, rate rapes go way up, which is a good thing because the rapes that were always there are being reported. As soon as the audit's finished, after two, three years, whatever, the rapes go back to where they were. The problem is not solved. And they compared it to other crimes on campuses, drugs, violent crimes, thefts. Those rates don't change whether they're being audited or not. It's, it's only rape. We, we t- treat rape so differently. No one wants to face it. No one wants to discuss it. Universities want to bury it. So we have to change privacy laws. We have to force universities to not be competing with each other. They all need to be punished if they don't accurately report rape. And there's proposals out there to reform FERPA, uh, to do all all kinds of things. It's going to take some strong-willed congressman and a functioning Congress, neither of which we have. So it's it's problematic. I mean, this this problem, in the best of circumstances, is going to be with us for decades and centuries. In the worst of circumstances, it's not going to change. That's what I'm worried about. It's a really, really deeply entrenched problem. But having gotten to know victims, and and once people found out I was writing this book, I can't tell you how many people I know, including two members of my own extended family, came up to me and said, I was raped. Uh, One friend I've known since I was 18, who's now 72, confessed, and I know her really well, said, John, i got to tell you, I feel emboldened now, is that when I was 18, I was a virgin, I was raped, in Denver, a University of Denver hockey player. I mean, and so many other women tell me, it is so prevalent. You know, what is it, one in four women, one in five? I don't know. I think it might be much higher than that. I mean, anecdotally, I I would think it is. Um, The studies show that whatever the numbers, you know, when you put out a number out there, the the deniers say, oh, you're blah, 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 and they use that. You know, it's all this kind of uh, faint and, and and dodge. I don't want to get hung up in that. It's a huge problem, and no one can deny that. Um, and, and the solution is not going to be easy. What about Missoula? The Department of Justice investigated their prosecution of rape cases. Jezebel did a, a great story on this. They called it the rape capital. There was other reporting leading up to your book. Then your book came out. Has anything changed in Missoula? Yeah, Missoula is... Um, <laughs> the university has, has done, you know... On one level, they're they're much they're doing a better job about taking victims seriously. On the other level, the Commissioner of Higher Education is still refusing to give me the records, and I could easily lose that case. Um, the Department of Justice enforced it forced the police department to change. It forced the prosecutor's office to do better work. The bad thing is Kirsten Pabst is now running the show, but she is she has an auditor who's forcing her to you know change her ways, and to some degree she is. The police department is. It was always better than the... Pro- the police were just cynical and jaded. They'd present all these cases to her with good evidence, sign confessions, and she wouldn't prosecute. So they're like, fuck, why should we bother? So um, they are now, you know, they're now taking it more seriously again. One old... Uh, hard, two, two seasoned detectives, and they were good detectives beforehand, they were forced to do education about how to interview victims afterwards, which is crucially important. 
Um, and they admitted, this, we're so much better now. We've learned that when, after a, a victim has been raped, her sense of what happened is it's, it's not, it's not, she can't remember what happened in chronological order. It's all about sensory. I mean, everything changes. So when cops need to be taught, detectives need to be taught, when you're interviewing a rape victim, ask her to tell her story. Don't judge. Don't do anything. Just let her tell her story. If you want to find out whether it's true or not, if you want to convict a guy who's guilty or you want to exonerate a man who's innocent, the best thing to do is just listen to the victim. Believe her until the evidence shows otherwise. Um, that's, and so there's people going around the country, organizations, training cops, training prosecutors, and this will make a difference. Um, problem is still juries. Juries are, they are, people say that, oh, universities are terrible. It's these, you know, students, faculty, staff, these kangaroo courts who know nothing about um, the criminal justice system. Or I tell you, having been, sat through a r- jury rape trial, I would, you know, University kangaroo courts are much more likely to, to give a, a, a fair verdict than jur- juries. Juries, you know, the defense attorneys are trying to weed out anyone who has a brain in their head. You know, they can, they can, and all they need is one in most states to one person to, you know, screw up the mix. So jury trials are not, they are designed, you know, to, to avoid convicting the innocent. Um, it's so different in, in you know, in, in a, in rape cases, it's not the big bad state against the poor victim who needs all these safeguards. It's the victim against, I mean, against the accused. It's the accused who has all these constitutional safeguards against the victim. It's not the accused against the state. And the victim has no safeguards. And defense attorneys can misrepresent the facts without penalty. It's common. If, if they don't do that, it's almost malpractice. You know, they need to attack the victim. If they don't do that, they're not going to win. So that's what they do. And the victim has no recourse. Nadine Oliver wrote to me that she read your book, and she said, my biggest disappointment was that there was no mention of education at, at a university. Even after the Justice Department got involved, for heaven's sake, why wasn't the football coach coaches teaching his players not to rape? Why weren't freshmen given a thorough education in preventing rape? Well, education is great, and, you, and most schools now in the past few years have started to educate freshmen. But if you don't know that it's wrong to rape women by the time you're 18, something is very wrong. Um, and... and and furthermore, you know, athletes, star big-time athletes, are they rape more than other students. And if college football coaches would just, you know, crack down, they have old, they're dictators. No one, you know, there's no recourse. They can kick someone off the team for anything. If they told their team members, you know, if I hear any rumors that you sexually assaulted someone, you're suspended. And if I find any evidence, you're gone. I don't care. You guys be careful. Don't do that. So coaches don't do that because they're all college football is a multi bazillion dollar industry. The co- college coaches have more power and athletic directors than the college presidents at almost every school. Um, the money, you know, it's so much money. So coaches, they, they re- they not only do they not uh, get, you know, kick rapists off the team, they recruit them. You know, when a couple of guys, <laughs> shady characters from UW, were asked to leave UW, Guess which school recruited them? And they, were, and they were involved in a gang rape in Missoula. I mean, this is what happens. Um, there's, there needs to be all kinds of changes in the NCAA, um, which won't happen. It's all this, you know, token symbolic changes. Football rules. Football is so much more 
you know, it's, it's much more important than education. Much, much. Jameis Winston, the number one draft pick last year, was absolutely guilty of raping this woman. Um, and and his, his attorneys have done such a good job of, of, of the media is so credulous. He's fed them all this misinformation. This poor woman, Erica Kinsman, has been shamed. And, you know, it's been terrible how she's been victimized. Uh, and that's what happens. The college president of FSU, you know, when they settled out of court and agreed to, the university agreed to pay the victim $900,000. And he was like, well, we think she's terrible and our guy's innocent, but we just did it because blah, 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 blah. That's what happens. That's t- How can a man do that? I mean, and it's common. He should be ashamed of himself, and he's not. I want to ask you, your book came out shortly after Rolling Stone published a story about a campus rape that they later had to recant because it turned out to be a false accusation with lots of errors and problems. How do you think that, and, and also your book coming right after it, have affected the discussion of this in our country? Well, people, people want to believe that women lie, and that Rolling Stone article was such a disservice to women everywhere because all the deniers are like, see, you know, crappy journalists, uh, lying women, and it just set everything back. Um, you can't then, some women do lie. Yeah, we get that. But there's, you know, I'm not saying everybody is, wants to deny, but I, from my own experience, I wasn't denying. I was just ignorant. I didn't want to face it. None of us do. I didn't want to believe that this young woman uh, who, who we care so much for could have been raped, you know. It's, it's funny. I, I was in Albany, New York last night, and I did something like this there. And afterwards, a woman came up to me who hadn't read the book. She came because she was interested in Into the Air or some other book. And, and she said, she came up to have me sign the book, and she said, I haven't read this, but I'm going to. You know, I feel, I got to admit this, I feel bad, but we have three sons, and whenever we read about these rapes, we would tell them, yeah, those women lie. Be careful of those women. That's really common. Mothers with sons do not want to believe their sons could be rapists. I'm sure the parents of this quarterback, and I saw them testify in trial, they believe he's innocent. They believe, you know, she is lying. Um, no one wants to believe their kid, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. A couple of these cases, one at Two, you know, this incident at Vanderbilt, for instance, where guys are so arrogant they use cell phones to film these rapes, um, and and people are shocked. Um, but if you know, if everyone, if there were hidden cameras, I think there'd be a lot more convictions. If you don't have a cell phone video, if the guy isn't stupid enough to do that, it's it's almost impossible to convict, and that's the problem. I'm sure this has provoked many questions. We have microphones in the front here. If you'd like to queue up to ask questions, I, I did want to ask you a little bit about your career because most people who are doing the kind of serious investigative reporting that you're doing have come up through newspapers and, and other programs. You were a carpenter, including here in Seattle. How did you change from doing that to doing what you have been doing so successfully for so many years? Um, I became a carpenter because I was a climbing bum in Colorado. Um, and I could work six months of the year, save a bunch of money, and climb. And I could always come back. I, you know, finish a house. I didn't leave in the middle of the house. But anyway, I was there's a recession in Colorado, so I moved to Seattle and uh, became a carpenter and a commercial fisherman in Alaska here. And um, you know, I I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like I didn't like the work. Uh, and so a friend convinced me to try freelancing. So I did. And in, 
I was living at the time on East Lake, Roanoke and East Lake, and I uh, got a couple of assignments, and I had enough lined up, so I hung up my tool belt and started freelancing. And I knew I couldn't just write about climbing, so I wrote about other stuff I knew. I wrote about herring fishing in Alaska for Smithsonian. I wrote about a, a climber I knew led these firewalks, hot coals in Seattle. So I wrote an article about firewalking in Rolling Stone. Um, so I, you know, I, I had to write like 60 articles a year when I started to make 15 grand. It was really, it's a really tough way to make a living. It's tougher now. Uh, but eventually, when I wrote Into the Wild and I realized I could start making my living writing books, I love big projects. I felt like when I wrote articles, I never got it right. I never had enough time to do this story justice. I love, I'm not, I, this isn't false modesty. I'm a, not a good writer. I'm a good self-editor, and I can really focus for a really long time, and I'm obsessive, and those are really good qualities. Well, <laughs> one, one more question before we get to the audience ones. Was being a carpenter at all useful for you? Did you learn any skills from that that you were able to translate into writing? Uh, not carpenteriness. I learned a lot from climbing about how to write a book. And really? That, like what? Uh, like when I climbed El Capitan, which is 3,000 feet, and it's really scary to contemplate if you haven't done it before. It's like writing a book. It's like, my God, this book is like 400 fucking pages. How am I going to write that? So what I learned from climbing El Cap is, man, you take it one rope length at a time, 150 feet at a time. You don't think about the pitches above. There's going to be 30 of them. So with the book, I, I taught, I'm self-taught. I never took a writing course. And I figured out... You know, I, I love research, and I'll spend three, four years, five years doing research, and I have boxes of stuff, and I figure out how to organize the highlight stuff and then make an outline on a single page of the basic points and then take each of those points as a chapter and one chapter at a time. It's like you don't look at the whole book. You just look at the page in front of you, um, and that's very helpful. Well, we've been focusing on Missoula, but your questions can be about that or any of the other books that Sean has written. Let's start over here. Could you say your name and have you ask your question? Daryl. My name, uh, my question is on the Missoula yes. information, and I wanted to ask Carl Carl that uh, me and my mother used to watch the news in the kitchen, and when someone was accused of a crime and they showed who they were, they were black, and we realized that we picked up the pattern that when it was a, a white male or committing the crime, they would never show the person. So this was four decades ago sometime, okay? Now, the, the snowball effect of that is uh, what, rape culture, uh, uh, the ease of rape, the entitlement, all these things. Do you, th and, and the inversely proportionate where, where it's very, where very few African Americans live, the higher the protection laws are to the, where the co highest concentration of African Americans seem to ease. Do you think this is some offshoot facet of white privilege that has backed you into a peculiar corner somehow and that white women seem to be the victims of this the most? I don't think white women are the most victims. There's a lot of black women are victims. But the race is, it plays a huge role in this. And coincidentally, I mean, it wasn't designed, but in Missoula, I didn't have to address the race problem in Missoula because some of the players were white, most of them, some were black. Um, so it wasn't, but I think in the country as a, as a whole, if you're black, you're much more likely to get convicted of any crime, but rape too, than if you're white. There's no doubt about that, unless you're a star black football player. And then 
you know, but one of the, I, in my book, I write about a couple of false accusations. I want to show how terrible it, it is. In one case, it was the Duke lacrosse players who were white. In the other, it was a black football player from Long Beach named Brian Banks who was innocent and he was railroaded and forced to take a plea deal and, and take a five-year prison, prison sentence and he was innocent. Um, his victim was a black woman or the, the woman who, who falsely accused him was black. But anyway, race is a huge problem and I didn't I didn't get into that. Uh, it needs to be addressed. So you have a good point there, without a doubt. Hi, what's your name and what's your question? Oh, I've got to tell you my name. I'm already nervous about being up here. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Uh, my name is Louise Pietrofeza, and uh, Mr. Krakauer, I love your books. I haven't read all of them, but I find you a very diligent researcher, and I have always enjoyed them. In, you made a couple of comments tonight, though, I must challenge you or, I guess, straighten out the record for people here who are survivors of rape. We know that people here are. And you said that it ruins women's lives. It does not ruin women's lives. It changes women's lives. It's very important that women do not allow a selfish act like rape to ruin their lives. As a psychotherapist, there are, I also want to say that there is treatment to post-traumatic stress syndrome, and everybody should seek it and take their power back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. What, one of the, uh, you know, I talk about how how frustrating this problem is. And it started to change before my book, certainly. Over the past, I've noticed a change over the past several years, that women victims are starting to come forward and say, you know what, I'm not going to be shamed into silence. The rapist, his, his main weapons are silence and shame. And one thing that can change society's attitude is women who come forward and embolden other women to come forward. And they still might not get justice, but they're helping to change you know, society's attitudes towards victims, towards and, rape. And you mentioned that some of the women you talked to for this book, you said you wouldn't necessarily need to use their names, but they wanted to use their names. Right. They wanted to be identified. I assumed everyone in the book would want to use a pseudonym. When, I, when the book was done and I showed them all the book and I said, okay, what would you like your pseudonym to be? Each of the women, all the women I interviewed wanted their real names used. I tried to talk them out of it. I said, are you sure this is, you're looking for trouble? I said, nope, I'm not going to be shamed into this anymore. I want to use my name. That, they were very courageous. Now, I don't, you know, that's a woman's choice, and I don't hold it against women who don't want to come out. I mean, it's a, it's a really big deal for which they tend to pay a big price. But these women, and, and one of the reasons, in the, in the women I wrote about in the book, for several of them, you know, they hadn't reported the rape right away, and it was only after they realized, my God, this guy might be out there raping other women. That was a huge factor in motivating them to report to the police, um, and that's helpful too. So, um, you know, there are, it, it doesn't necessarily have to ruin your life, but I certainly know of women who have committed suicide, and, and it did ruin their lives. Um, there are plenty of women who didn't. Post-traumatic stress, there's no cure, but you can certainly... Therapy is essential, and therapy can, you know, help deal with it, just as it can help veterans of war deal with it. Yes, what's your name and what's your question? Hi, uh, my name is Mara Silvers. I'm from Helena, Montana. 
And uh, one of the points that you make in Missoula that I thought was really interesting was that the criminal justice system is much more about winning than it is about truth. And I was wondering if you had a vision um, that came to you or an idea during uh, the process of writing this book, what an ideal way would be uh, to deal with the healing that needs to happen um, that's, that's something greater than uh, in a courtroom. Um, that's tough because accountability really helps healing. I mean, studies show this. If, if a rapist... It's not really retribution, but it helps a victim heal to know that the man who raped her is taking responsibility for the crime and maybe being punished. So I think it's important to hold rapists accountable. The healing, that's tough. You know, that's... I think if uh, most rapists aren't going to be held accountable, so the healing has to happen without that. That's just a fact. That's the way it is. And, um, you know, all I can say is supportive of other victims is, is key to that. But Yes, what's your name and your, what's your question? Hi, my name is Claire. I actually just moved to Seattle from just outside of Missoula. Uh, my question is, do you have any insight into the university's recent decision to settle with Jordan Johnson? Uh, I was really upset by that. The question is, this quarterback, Jordan Johnson, this is something I haven't said yet, um, so I'm trying to get his records to see why the university commissioner overturned his expulsion. I know that he did that. I don't know why. And um, just, I don't know, a week ago or something, not only did Johnson avoid being expelled, he then sued the university for treating him badly, and the university just settled with him for a quarter million. They paid him, not only did they not expel him, they just paid him a quarter million dollars. Um, And what that was about, the university system said, well, we think, you know, we were in the right, but as a university, it was less risky for us to pay him a quarter million dollars than to go to court. I think that's bullshit. I think they had a really strong case. I think if they had gone to court, instead of letting a mediator, agreeing to a mediated settlement, um, I think they probably would have won. I also think that by paying instead of, by settling and paying this thing, they just encouraged all these other guys who, some guys aren't guilty and they should sue if they're falsely accused, but most of them are, and now they encouraged all those guys to say, you know what, we can threaten to sue and the university will fork us, not only are we going to get away with a rape, but we're going to get rich from it, so this is a terrible precedent. Um, it also, you know, it, it goes against the university did not want to expose this dirty laundry. Yeah, they thought it was cheaper maybe to pay him a quarter million dollars, but they also didn't want all that dirty laundry in public. I think it's reprehensible. I think it's outrageous. Um, but, you know, it is, it's done. Yes, your name and your question. Yeah, my name is Jordan. Um, I read Missoula and I loved it. Um, I have a degree in higher education and so have studied this for many years. And I'm curious, two things. Uh, one, why Missoula? Um, why Missoula, Montana, and this university. And also, um, get your opinion on um, the CN- there's a great CNN film, The Hunting Ground, um, which talks about sexual assault on campus. And in it, they follow several women who are in the process of suing universities because of discriminatory Title IX. Um, what do you think about that as a solution, as a plan to try to get universities to become accountable? I think Hunting Graham is a wonderful film. I urge everyone to see it. I think women absolutely have a right and would encourage them to sue if their rights have been violated. But, you know, that's, that's a... You have the, the accused guys suing, you have the victim suing. 
yeah, that's maybe needs to happen. But don't settle it. Do it. If you're going to sue, don't settle. I mean, and, and that's a tough thing to say to women. You know, they've been raped. They want to be compensated. They want some justice. But, you know, really think hard about, you know, going to trial and, and paying that price. But if you want to change things, you need to shine a bright light on this. So, um, and why Missoula? It was just sort of, I was looking at 30 different cities and schools and there was a case going on in Missoula, and I decided to fly up there and check it out. And I was so impressed by the victim, Allison Huguet, testifying in court when she was being bullied by this defense attorney. And she stood up to him and gave him as good as she got. And I was so impressed with her, I decided then and there, I can write a book around, around this woman. And, and, and ended up being this Missoula. Yes, your name and question. Hi there. My name is Glynis Kirkmeyer, and actually within the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be filing a human rights complaint against the University of British Columbia for its failure to expel or anyway deal with a student that had been reported by close to two dozen people, um, not all victims, but people working on their behalf. Um, and he was only expelled when a national investigatory program did an expose on him last November. Um, I probably will settle the case in mediation, in, at least in part because the tribunal is uh, staffed by old fogies who may not quite understand. So if you're going to not settle, you have to be realistic about the nature of the court that you're going before. So just, But my question is, um, he'd been reported so much to so many different people, and universally, the people that we felt respected us, um, treated us with either condescension or contempt when we told them that this violence is happening. And I just want, I mean, you're, you're, you're not them, but why? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the thing that affects me. Why were women treated that way? When why, why, the, why was the response so universal, condescension and contempt? I think I think a lot of this at universities is, you know, money is tight. Um, they want to protect the brand. They they need to keep enrollment up. They need to keep donors giving money. Some, as the hunting ground points out, for most universities, I don't know if this is true in Canada, but um, the for the fraternity system is a pipeline for money. Fraternity brothers and sorority sisters are more likely to donate than others. They have loyalty to their school. The fraternity experience, God knows why, you know, bonds them. And, and so schools are not only loath to, they don't want to kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. Um, they don't want to be known as the rape capital of the world. Um, so there you have all these school, they have all these unconscious incentives to, all these incentives to not even consciously, but unconsciously diminish the problem. That's a huge reason why their first reaction always is, well, maybe this isn't true, and if it isn't, boy, we sure don't want to publicize this. And it's easier to shame the victims and blame you guys and than to say, you know what? we got a problem here. We're going to really look into it. Yes. Hi. My name's Kathy Middleton, and I... Uh, well, you said... If you have a daughter going to college, be very, very scared. And I have a freshman at the U um, and a, and a 16-year-old son. And I'm a health educator, and I'm always thinking upstream. I'm thinking about prevention. And I'd be very curious to hear what you 
think we should be telling our kids and what, what we can do about this on a preventive level before it gets this far, without think, blaming the victim. I think it has to begin with how sons and daughters are raised, especially sons have to learn to respect women. I mean, you know, I grew up in a family of uh, five kids, three very, very assertive women, <laughs> Uh, and 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 my mom was assertive. I mean, I, I think that's important. Um, I think, you know, the training, some of the training that has shown to be effective in colleges and the military is uh, to encourage young men to to intervene if they see, not just turn a blind eye. If they're at a party and they say, see some guy hitting on a drunk girl, you intervene. You don't, you don't just, you you drag him off and you lecture him and you you rescue her. I mean, that kind of stuff can... It's sort of creating this this culture among men that, you know, it's not okay. Uh, you know, sexual conquest isn't a cool sport. I mean, that's the problem, is so many guys, so frat culture, jock culture, it's... Yeah, it's just... I mean, <laughs> one of the most disturbing chapters in the book is this guy, Lisak, recounting... Um, this tape-recorded interview he did of a guy, a frat boy, who every week he'd pick out a victim, um, invite her to a party, get her drunk, and rape her. Um, and you hear him. He doesn't see himself as a rapist, but you see these freshmen are just... He, he talks to them. They're so vulnerable. They're so innocent. And he targets them. So you have to, you have to convince the other frat boys this is not... This is, a, it's criminal, and you should go to prison if you do this. And B, you know, you can you can prevent this. You can intervene. I think that would that will help. Um, but you know, it's I've you, I've I've studied so many cases where otherwise decent men seem to think it's okay to rape women. They don't see it as rape. It's okay to you know get women drunk and and have sex with them. They're unconscious or force them to have sex and. That's just what men do. And I don't know how you change that. You change it, you know, it's slowly person by person. But I think that consent conversation, I think that's... I think the consent conversation... Really, really important. It's really more colleges are... Different. It is important, but you know what? Um, the women, yeah, the women in my book said no made it absolutely clear it was no. The men said, don't worry, you can just fall asleep. I'm a good guy. And she wakes up and he's raping her. I mean, you know, consent isn't that complicated. I mean, I think it's great. We emphasize men. No means no. I don't have a problem with this. You know, if you can't talk about sex, if you don't, you know, if if you can't communicate well enough to know whether the woman wants it or not, man, you have no business having sex. It's just... That, I don't know. <laughs> We've got time for a couple more questions, but John will be signing books after we finish. We've got time for one more here and one more over here. What's, what's your name and your question? My name's Joanna Brown, and unfortunately I've not yet read your book, but I'm eagerly looking forward to it. But I loved the movie The Hunting Ground, and I'm wondering if you have considered joining forces with Kirby Dick to continue to publicize how awful this is. I have... Sp- Spoken at length in an ongoing way with Kirby Dick and uh, his his yeah I'm all for that we're sort of on the same team for this stuff. And our last question from over here. Hi, my name 
name's Ruth. Um, I'm curious if you found, if you even researched this at all, um, any link between childhood abuse and adult, like being a perpetrator as an adult? There's a clear link both, uh, there's certainly a link between women who are sexually abused as children are much more apt to be raped than women who aren't. The, the research is horrifying and very clear about this. I don't know about, certainly men who are sexually abused are, you know, there can be a pattern where they in turn become abusers of other boys. I don't know that, you know, I, I know that for like one of the studies I read about incarcerated men who are incarcerated for rape, uh, there was a high incidence among those men of being sexually abused as children. So I suspect there is, but I can't tell you exactly. I mean, it's, you know, when David Lisak was sexually abused as a young man, and it's not like that, you know, you're cursed with being, you know, there's, he now is an incredible advocate for victims. So, um, but yeah, there's, you know, to be sexually abused does, you know, does damages your view of the world. There's no doubt about that. And Thank you. Thank you. John will be signing books over here. We have books for sale over here. Thank you for your attention, and thank you, John Krakauer. John Krakauer's new book is Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. He spoke with KUOW's Ross Reynolds at Town Hall Seattle on February 24th. Thank you again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. And thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle.